Well, good evening. Welcome back to uh, our little school of theology as we make our way uh, through the various uh, loci, the various uh, topics uh, in systematic theology. There is an order uh, of topics uh, that we are considering, and uh, tonight we are going to look at the providence of God. Next week we'll be looking at the creation of man, the providence of God. And on page two, uh, I've given you a a classic statement of providence, uh, the fifth chapter of the Westminster Confession, with its uh, seven uh, sections. I won't uh, read it all, but uh, it has encapsulated uh, in this not-so-brief summary of the doctrine of providence, it has encapsulated uh, all of the main and important ideas relating to the topic of the doctrine of providence. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern All creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, let's uh, turn the page, page 3, to the meaning uh, of providence and uh, let's try and expand a little on what we mean uh, by providence. And when we talk about the providence of God, uh, made up of course of two Latin words, pro video, video to see pro beforehand, God sees beforehand the providence of God. God's foreknowledge of every event and every circumstance and his foreknowledge of every event because every event is part of his decree. So providence is a kind of subcategory of the doctrine of predestination, which we were looking at several weeks ago, that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and providence is God's control, his direction over every event and over every creature uh, in the universe. So by providence we mean um, the divine will of God exercising his power to ensure, one, that all his creation, all his creatures are kept in being, So sustaining us in being, the fact that we breathe, the fact that we are alive, the fact that we are here uh, is is part of the sustaining, governing providence of God. This is a a view that's opposite, say, to deism. Deism is 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 the grandfather clock view of God. God winds up the universe and then, and then it just lets it go to tick away uh, of, its own, of its own accord. But he, he is the absentee landlord, if you like, if you want to change the metaphor. Um, now this view of providence is the opposite of that, that God sustains, keeps all of creation, every creature within creation in being. 
And God works concurrently. That's a kind of buzz term. We'll come back to it later. Um, God works concurrently in every event and circumstance. Right? So every event, every circumstance is capable of a statement that says, God did this. God is in charge of this. God controls this. That, even though the statement may also be true that we did this, we are in charge of this, but it, it is also true that God did this. God is in charge of this. God works concurrently in every event and circumstance to ensure, three, that his goal and his goal ultimately is to bring glory to himself, God's goal, God's projected future, is always and invariably achieved. And that means, and again I'm using a, some, somewhat of a technical expression um, here, that providence, this view of providence, does not have any risk factor to it as far as God is concerned. Right, the, the future isn't risky. God ha- there, there, are no, there are no factors in the future which would take God by surprise. Everything that was, is, and is to come is under the umbrella of God's overall control. That's what we mean by providence. And this is a no-risk view of providence, guaranteeing the future. Guaranteeing, therefore, that when God predicts something, it will come to pass. Now, we all, Christians, whether, whether we think this is extreme, but all of, us, all of us who are Christians live our lives claiming the promises of God, meaning that God's promises are immutable. God's promises cannot be thwarted. The, the projected future that God has prophesied will come to pass. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And all of his elect will occupy the new heavens and the new earth. Well, to ensure that that actually is the case, there is a doctrine of providence that says God governs and sustains all of creation and all of his creatures in order to achieve his goal and his end. Uh, then I've given you a, 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 a summary a definition of uh, providence from uh, Louis Burkhoff, a, commit, a continual exercise of divine energy whereby God, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, is concurrently active in all events and directs all things to their appointed end. Uh, and uh, I, I was... I'm, I've just been expanding a little on Burkhoff's fairly classic uh, definition of providence. Now, the following set of statements provides for us the grammar of providence. God does it and man or Satan or some other creature does it. There are two sources of explanation for any given event. Man does it, but, but God does it too. God is in control of it. God governs it. it. It's part of God's decree. So both of those statements are true. Or, it is God's will, in the sense that it is his decretive will, it's the will of his decree, it's the will of his event, 
but it is contrary to his will of command or precept. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, it is contrary to God's will that you steal. And yet, if you do steal, it's all part of the outworking of God's plan. God, God is still in control. He hasn't, he hasn't abandoned his control. Bad things happen, but God is still in control. So there are two senses here of God's will. There is what we call the will of his decree, the will of his commandment, uh, and then there is the will, there is the will of his, uh, there is the will of his uh, permission. He, al- he allows certain things to happen, and, and therefore you can view it as, as fulfilling God's will and being contrary to God's will at the same time. Uh, it is sin on our part, but God orders it and overrules it for the good of his people. Right? Two aspects of the same event. It is sin, but God overrules it, governs it in such a way as to bring good for his people. And the Joseph text, Genesis 50 verse 20, immediately springs to mind. Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil. It was sin. They were culpable. They were accountable. They were responsible for their actions. But God meant it for good. So it was sin, but God also overrules it. Uh, God determines all that is, but God is not the author of sin. Two angles of what occurs. Um, God determines all that is, but he's not the author of sin. Now, that's... uh, That's easier to say than to explain. Um, I I think that you have to say both statements. Uh, I think it takes a little bit of finesse uh, to to explain how can God God determine all that is and and not be the author of sin. And of course we we don't ever want to get to the position where we make God the author of sin. That would make God himself morally culpable for sin. And God cannot be morally culpable for sin. So whatever the explanation is for sin in the world, God, God can create a universe in which sin is possible, but for which he is not directly responsible. Now all of those statements are, are somewhat puzzling. You can, you can you know, send yourself just a little bit crazy repeating them uh, over and over, but those, those are the statements, those are the, the grammatical statements of providence. Let's, uh, let's shut some gates here uh, by uh, number four, unacceptable views of providence. Uh, views that suggest the future is risky. And that's unacceptable. That would make prophecy impossible. Uh, that would make certainty about heaven impossible if the future is, ri- is risky in any way. Any view that attributes to man any kind of absolute autonomy that makes the future risky as far as God is concerned, absolute free will makes God sit on the sidelines and therefore he cannot know the future. That's wholly unacceptable. Uh, that's a view held by open theists or, uh, or free will theists. Um, Views that suggest that God set the world in motion but acts much like an absentee landlord. Uh, that's, that's deism. Uh, some of the founding fathers, just to remind you, uh, some of the founding fathers were probably deists in their view of God. 
Uh, it, was a, it was a very prominent view uh, in the 18th uh, century uh, that God winds up the clock, as it were, and then, and then stands back and allows the clock to tick away. Uh, views that suggest Satan or, or generic evil is as much in control as God is. That's the view we call dualism, that, that there are equal forces of good and evil, and that the universe and all that is in it is explicable in terms of a battle between two equal opposing forces of good and evil. And that's wholly unacceptable from a biblical uh, point of view. Whatever However, we explain the origin of the downfall of Satan as a created angel uh, under some kind of probation, and the Bible is somewhat mysteriously silent on on exactly how that took place. Uh, We do know that before Adam fell in the garden, there was sin in the universe. Satan is already a sinner. Satan, evil is already present. The the snake in in the garden represents the presence of evil in the universe, even before Adam and Eve personally fall. But God is ultimately in control. And any view that suggests dualism is unacceptable. Or the view that suggests that God's control makes our involvement um, irrelevant and meaningless. Que sera, sera. You know, whatever will be, will be. I mean, there's no, there's no point in chafing against it. Uh, you, you, are, you are just a cog in this machine and, uh, and you are just uh, the victim of, of blind fate. Uh, fatalism or determinism. Islam is essentially fatalistic and deterministic. The will of Allah is the explanation for everything in Islam. And it is essentially philosophically, I think, fatalistic and deterministic. And therefore, wholly opposite, I think, to a a Christian view of God. Now, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about providence and guidance Uh, And I want to approach it with a focus here on providence. Now, if if you have a particular issue with guidance and you you came along this evening wanting to know an answer to a particular question, this is probably not going to help you very much. Uh, I'm thinking of it now theologically and somewhat philosophically, uh, the relationship of providence to guidance. What do we mean when we say that something is providential? And sometimes we mean different things in the same sentence. Now, in one sense, everything that happens is God's providence. Tripping on a curb, breaking my mother's best china, getting a hole in one, or putting the ball in the water, all of these are providential. Now, we tend to use the word providential when, when it's something extraordinary that we cannot explain ourselves. Now, putting the ball in the water, we can most of us could explain. Um, But it is also an act of providence. God is also in charge. God is also in control. So so in a sense, everything is providential. Though we tend to use the term to mean this is extraordinary. This is is a, a divine intervention of an extraordinary, perhaps even miraculous kind. And, And technically that's incorrect. Everything is providential. So in, in, in saying that, we're using the word providence in a descriptive way to mean God's 
um, purposive management and total control of all events, past, present, and future. Right? Descriptive providence. Everything is providential. Secondly, and, and more typically, Christians sometimes want to know if an event is providential in the sense of some good or some benefit um, emerging from it. Um, in, in that sense, providence is being used in an evaluative sense, now, now typically associated with the ideas of guidance. Now, remember what I said about the will of God's events and the will of God's command. Uh, the will of God's events means that everything that happens is, is the fulfillment of God's will. It's the fulfillment of God's decree. And yet, and yet what happens can be contrary to God's will at the same time. God is, God is always in control. It is always an outworking of his decree in one sense. So there are, there are two senses here of the word will. Now, let's, uh, let's, let's go into a sidebar for a minute and uh, let's imagine certain scenarios and, and ask what, what understanding of providence do we have in these scenarios. Uh, unlike Dr. Ferguson, Dr. Thomas providentially did not get the flu this year. What kind, of, what kind of use of providentially? You know, I'm using providentially there in an evaluative sense, not in a descriptive sense. In one sense, the fact that, that Dr. Ferguson and myself, one had flu and one did not, both of them are providential. Although, although you, you, can, you can imagine the scenario where, where we say of one, one is providential and the other is not. Uh, Mr. Blobby failed to look in either his rear-view mirror or side mirror on entering the interstate. Right? He narrowly misses colliding with Mrs. Forthright only because she providentially braked and slowed down. Right? Again, we're using the word providentially there in an evaluative sense. Right? That, was a, that was a special, discernible, heightened... Thing that she did. She, she, she put a foot on the brake and, and narrowly avoided a collision with Mr. Blobby. He wasn't looking where he was going. Actually, the entire event was providential in that sense. Right? In both of those cases, the evaluative good can be seen. Um, Johnny Pimple missed his train home on Tuesday evening as he stood on the platform contemplating his misfortune, he noticed a young lady, Miss Innocent, who had also missed the train. The two began to talk. It was the beginning of a relationship that led Johnny to propose to Miss Innocent, and she accepted. Probably not on the same day. <laughs> that they both missed the train was very providential. Right? We've gone now from providential to very providential. Actually, the entirety of it, in one sense, is providential. But Mr. and Mrs. Smith lost their son, John, in a car accident. Their son was driving home from school when a drunk driver failed to stop at a red light and collided with John, killing him instantly. He was 17 years old. No matter how hard they try, Mr. and Mrs. Smith are asking why this event was allowed to occur. But so far, 
have not been able to see any positive good in it. Some call this mysterious providence. That too is an act of providence. It's an act in which God is in absolute and total control, and yet we can't see the good in it. We're not given an explanation necessarily as to why these events occurred. But actually, from a theological point of view, and if I can step away a minute from the emotional and pastoral side of that illustration, um, and think merely theologically for a second, all of these events are providential. So providence, when we talk about providence in the descriptive sense, everything is God's providence, right? That in itself offers us absolutely no help at all in guidance, because everything that happens is part of God's providence. So you can't look at one event and say, oh, that's that's providential, so God is speaking to me in that event, or, or that's very providential, so God must be speaking to me in, the, in, the, in that event. Actually, every event is providential. Everything that happens is, is part of God's providence. Right? So descriptive providence can't help me in guidance. It cannot inform me what I ought to do. I'd look at... Uh, uh, look at uh, the two examples I give here. From uh, One is from Acts chapter 2 and one is from Genesis 50. The Acts chapter 2 passage is uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. And it's the crucifixion of Jesus and Peter saying at Pentecost, uh, you, speaking to the Jews at Jerusalem, you by wicked hands took him and slew him, but it was all by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You did it, but it was God's providence. It was all under God's control. It was part of his decree. What you did was evil. What you did, you are morally responsible for. What you did, you are culpable for. You bear responsibility for what you did. And yet, it is all part of God's providence. Every every aspect of it. There's Peter on the day of Pentecost. Or or, um, Joseph to his brothers uh, at at the moment when they discern who he is. As for you, you meant evil against me. It is evil, and, and you bear responsibility. Uh, and, and part of the whole storyline in Genesis 50 is, is Joseph trying to get them to see their responsibility. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right, the crucifixion of Jesus and the treatment of Joseph were both providential uh, in the descriptive sense. And yet both acts were contrary to God's will, right? the will of his command, uh, or the will of his proscription or prescription. Um, but in another sense, both were in fulfillment of God's will of events. It's, right? It fulfills God's will in the sense that, that everything that happens is an outworking of his decree. And yet at the same time, it can be contrary to his will uh, of command. Um, they, they, they broke God's uh, law. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about providence and prayer. Providence and prayer. Uh, because the issue of, uh, of uh, God's control and uh, the issue of God changing his mind, uh, the issue of the, of the fixity of the future, 
uh, in God's in God's mind is at stake when we when we when we pray, particularly in petitionary or intercessory uh, prayer. Uh, does God change His mind as a result of our praying? And if so, does this mean that the future isn't cast in stone, but is um, well fluid in some way? Uh, there's the example here is from Genesis 18, Abraham praying for the city of uh, uh, Lot, his nephew, uh, for the city of Sodom, his nephew uh, Lot and his uh, wife and family are, th- are there in, in Sodom and uh, the angel of the Lord, uh, the, the, three, the three visitors have come and revealed themselves to, uh, Joseph, to uh, Abraham and Abraham begins to pray, you know, for 50 righteous men would he spare the city, for 40, for 30, for 20. Right? And, and down and down uh, he goes. Uh, and uh, suppose ten are found there. And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And on the surface, it looks as if God, this is a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, uh, what's the word? Not bargain, but, uh, but uh, Abraham is engaging uh, with God in a way that God seems to be changing his mind. Uh, bartering, as it were, for 50, no, how about 40, how about 30, how about 20, how about 10, sparing the city for, for 10. And from a human perception point of view, it, it looks as if the future had been cast one way and is now being cast in a different way. God has changed his mind. Now, there are larger things at stake here than the doctrine of providence. Um, God's immutability is at stake here. Can, can God change? Does he change in his, in his essence? A uh, second example is from Isaiah 38, well-known example of Hezekiah the king uh, praying uh, for restoration from his sickness, and God gives him 15 years. Right? He's going to die. It's been, it's, been, it's been prophesied in one sense, uh, and then he prays, uh, he weeps, he prays, and then the Lord comes and says, uh, uh, he's heard his prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king. Now, how do we understand passages uh, like that in relationship to the doctrine of providence? Uh, If the petition response is deemed genuine, right, and not a fake, it's not a it's a mirage. God doesn't really change his mind. This is just a kind of pretense kind of thing. It's, it's like a fairy story. If the petition response is deemed genuine and not a fake, does it require that we view the future as risky and undetermined by God? Well, if you say yes to that, a whole lot of things come tumbling down uh, in, terms, in terms of God's prophecy about the future, God's control of the future, that, that somehow or other we can manipulate God into change, actually changing his mind. Um, that's the question that uh, prayer and providence raises. If the relationship between God and man is deemed to be personal, now it's sometimes argued if, if we have a personal relationship with God, for that to be personal and that relationship to be genuinely personal, no coercion, right? By coercion, I mean, I mean, I mean doing something contrary to someone's will, either on man's part against God or God's part against man. If that relationship is deemed to be personal, the relationship cannot be coercive 
um, in any way. Only in such circumstances can there be genuine dialogue, right? Without coercion, you can have genuine dialogue. And in that case, God takes risks. That's the argument. Right? For a no-risk view of providence, it's, it is necessary to view not only the result, but also the prayer itself as part of God's ordination, right? as part of God's ordained um, decree. So, so, that, so that God isn't taken by surprise by this prayer. It was all part of his decree all along. Both the prayer itself and the answer, what seems to us like a change of plan on God's part, is actually all of it under the providential control and oversight of God. And in that sense, nothing takes God by surprise. The praying is itself an act of God's providence. Now, listen to how Joseph Hart, uh, in a hymn, puts it. Prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Right? God is designed to give these blessings. This was always part of his plan, to give these blessings. But the way he gives these blessings is through you asking for it. It's like a parent. You know, you want, uh, it's their birthday, you bought them a present, you've decided you, they're going to have this present, and then on, on, on the morning you sit there and there's nothing there. You've all played this little joke, right? And uh, you've sat there and the child has come in and there's nothing there. And you, you want them to ask, and you, where's my bicycle, or where's my, where's my American doll, or whatever it is that the, that's in your future. Uh, whatever, whatever, whatever that that present is, and you, you, you want them to ask. You've, you've, you've determined beforehand they're going to get this present, but you do want them to ask for it. And, and that seems to be what Hart is saying here. Prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Now, um, providence and accountability. Uh, providence and accountability. The issue here is... Um, if God is in complete control, if everything that happens is providential, nothing takes God by surprise, uh, how are we accountable? Uh, how, can, uh, how can the crucifixion of Jesus be by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, the outworking of his decree, and yet for the Jews uh, in Jerusalem, to be morally accountable for it, as Peter suggests, as a fellow Jew suggests in Acts chapter 2. Or, or how can Joseph say uh, to his brothers, uh, this, is, this is all part of God's plan. God meant this all along because this is how he was going to bring, uh, bring, uh, the, the, save his people uh, during a, a period of, uh, of uh, famine. Uh, bring you all, bring, bring us all here. This was all part of God's plan, but you, what you did in, in selling me as a, as a slave to a passing band of uh, Midianites or whatever, uh, you meant it for evil, and you are morally culpable uh, for it. Now, that, uh, that issue uh, you know, is a wider issue between how can God be sovereign and we be responsible. Right? It's, uh, it's the Philippians 2... Uh, 12 and 13 problem. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right? It's, it's the same issue. It's the issue between sovereignty and responsibility. Now here, uh, here uh, the issue of accountability is, um, uh, is one uh, in which um, various various models, a variety of models have actually been, have been, uh, have been given uh, to try and explain uh, how, how God can decree all things and yet not be, for example, the author of sin. Uh, so let me, let, me, let me dip from accountability into the next issue, which is providence and evil, uh, keeping that, keeping that uh, issue in mind. Uh, one is to say uh, one is to say, um, evil is uh, a privation. Uh, you see it there, I call it the A-team, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas. Uh, these are th- three big names for sure. Uh, that uh, that um, God, is, uh, God is responsible for creating a universe in which it is possible to sin. But he is not himself he is not himself responsible for creating that sin. He, simply, he is simply responsible for creating a universe in which sin is possible. Uh, sin, is, sin is regarded as a, as a negative thing here. And uh, that, that's been one attempt, one model uh, for trying to explain uh, in, in a way that we can perhaps understand how God can be the author of all things but not the author of sin. That he can decree all things, but not be the author of sin. Um, some have used uh, the language of permission. You know, God permits evil, um, and therefore we are accountable for that evil. God permits it in a sense in which he has not himself created it. Um, it's, not the, it's not the kind of permission where... Where, where God is kind of passive, this is a, this is a positive permission. He, he, he grants permission. Uh, he, 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 allows, he allows it to take place, uh, but he himself is not culpable uh, for it. And uh, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards uh, have, have used that language of permission. Uh, a third model uh, is divine Compatibilism, and that's just a fancy term, it doesn't really get you anywhere, that, that more or less says God, uh, God, is, God decrees everything, uh, and, and yet, at the same time, we are morally uh, responsible for our actions, uh, and, uh, and, and, and those two are, are equally ultimate. Those two truths are equally ultimate. And, and this word compatibilism is just a word that's, I think, thrown out there to try and cover the basis. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, is, is, in that sense, um, a compatibilist. Uh, the Westminster Confession uses the fourth model, uh, causal levels, uh, distinguishes between first and second causes. Uh, that God works uh, immediately and immediately. That God uh, God can create immediately, and yet He can work through through second causes, uh, so that you can explain the weather in terms of barometric pressure and sunspots and radiation and, and whatever. You can tell I'm not up on on meteorology, but but 
that, that things are explainable from different levels uh, of causation. That's, that's how the Westminster Confession uh, regards providence. Now, let's, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, something more uh, pastoral uh, and the issue of um, theodicy uh, on page 8. Uh, theodicy is just a fancy word for justifying the ways of uh, the ways of God. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, about evil, um, evil and pain. Uh, Christian theologians have spoken of this in in several ways. Uh, let me let me raise uh, John Piper's. A uh, little book, uh, incredibly useful book, uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Uh, this is John Piper, of course, who himself had cancer and uh, wrote this book, Don't Waste Your Cancer. In other words, use it uh, as part of your Christian testimony to the providence of God. God m- meant it for your good uh, so that through it you would, uh, you would grow. Um, and... Uh, a question is sometimes asked, does the New Testament actually go that far? Should, should, we, should we perhaps say praising God in everything rather than praising God for everything? And, and that's a kind of subtle distinction. Uh, the first wanting to, wanting to remove God, as it were, a little distance from, from the evil itself uh, and, and, and saying uh, in the midst of that evil... Uh, we, we praise God. We, 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 we use that set of circumstances uh, in order to give him praise. Now, not all, uh, you know, evil, I say, is an umbrella word uh, covering, covering at least two things, um, morally bad persons on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, uh, tragic accidents, uh, Human badness, experiences of pain. Not all pain. Not all pain is bad. You know, some pain. Some pain is a good thing. You, know, you put your hand against the fire and it hurts. It's a good thing because you pull your hand away. You know, if you're a leper and you've lost uh, nerve endings in the end of your finger and your hand is on something hot, you, you don't realize it. So, so not all not all pain is 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 bad. Uh, so, so there there may be a there may be a way there of seeing how God can use pain as actually a, a, a deterrent, a growing mechanism, a maturing mechanism uh, in our lives. Uh, we, certainly, we certainly see that in terms of disciplining, disciplining our children. We, we're not doing an evil thing in disciplining our children and the infliction of pain, whether it's emotional pain or psychological pain or or physical pain. Not not all pain is necessarily bad. Um, The the problem of evil is brought about by three things. One, God is sovereign. God is Lord. God is in control. Secondly, um, God is holy. God is without sin. He is free from any sin or defect of any kind. He is impeccable. And thirdly, evil is real. It's not just a state of mind. Evil is a real thing. Now, if you remove any one of those three, you remove the problem of evil. If you remove God's sovereignty, 
And you say, God is not Lord. He's not in control of everything. He may be in control of some things, but he's not in control of everything. Right? Process theology, free will theism is a, a way of doing that. Uh, uh, Harold, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Kushner's book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Phenomenally successful. Uh, sold millions of copies in airports uh, everywhere. Uh, but, but actually what he's done is he's removed the first principle. God isn't in control. The, the, way, the way to deal with the problem of evil is to, is to bring God down a peg and to say his hands are tied. Right? We've all been in situations, uh, I've certainly been at funerals, uh, in, in horrible, dire, tragic circumstances. And the minister said something like, you know, don't, don't blame God because he wasn't there. You know, his hands were tied. This has nothing to do with God. This is just the fact that we live in a, in a, in a fallen world and, 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 and God wasn't here. Where was God in this situation? And the answer to that question is always right there. He was right there. That's always the, the Christian biblical answer. However difficult that is, he was right there. That's the Christian answer. That's the Jesus answer. He was right there. Rabbi Krishna's answer, of course, is to say God isn't there. He, he denudes God of his power. Or you can deny God's moral perfection. Islam does that. Islam has no problem with, uh, with God being less than fully moral. Uh, that's, that's just part of uh, the philosophy of, uh, of Islam. It denies the moral perfection of God. Or thirdly, you can deny the reality of evil. You know, Christian science. You know, it's just a state of mind. I love this little limerick. A Christian scientist of Deal once said, although pain isn't real... When I sit on a pin and puncture my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. Now, you've got to think about it. Uh, it's all a state of mind. Uh, the pain is real, but actually it's, I dislike what I, what I think in my head, but actually I feel it. Right? It's, a kind of, it's a limerick on Christian science. Um, now, what are the biblical principles here? God, is, God in sovereign goodness permits evil. God punishes evil with evil. God produces good out of evil. God protects his people amidst evil. And God purposes victory over evil. Now, the issue of evil and providence is, a, is an enormously um, pastorally complex thing. Take the 73rd Psalm, uh, Asaph. Uh, he envied the ways of the wicked because uh, they seemed to have everything. You know, he looked to the ways of the wicked uh, and they seemed to have everything. Uh, that's uh, Psalm, uh, that's, uh, Psalm 73 and, uh, and, and Asaph's uh, uh, envy of the wicked. Um, why, do the right, why, why do the ungodly prosper? You know, why do... Why do Bad things happen to good people. Well, why do bad things happen to Christians? Why do bad things happen to those who love the Lord? Why do bad things happen to those who love Jesus? And, and uh, those who don't love Jesus seem to, seem to have everything. No, that's not true. And Asaph was distorting the facts for sure. But, but we've all been there. We've all seen the lives of the ungodly and think, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be right. That doesn't seem to be fair. Or Job. Job is a case of innocent suffering. He has, um, 
Ten children. Loses them all in one day. I, I can't imagine what that is. Can't imagine it. To lose all of your children in one day. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now you understand if you're Rabbi Kushner, and I mean this in all sincerity, if you're Rabbi Kushner, you have to say, as he does, Job was wrong. Right? It wasn't the Lord who took away. Right? It was circumstances, it was evil, it was the world, it was Satan, it was something, but it wasn't God. Job, Job has a view of God here in which he sees a no-risk view of the future. Everything that happens is part of the outworking of God's decree. That's where Job is. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job then loses his health. Uh, contracts um, elephantiasis or whatever it was. And... Uh, you know, Mrs. Job says, you know, curse God and die. Calvin called her Diabolus Matrix. You, you don't have to know any Latin. To, that's not a compliment. Uh, she was the Organum Satanum, he called her. Satani, um, the organ of Satan. Not a compliment. Now, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. You know, she's, she's grieving too. She's lost ten children too. She doesn't want to see her husband suffer, so, so, so curse God and get it over with. And uh, Job says, you remember, she speaks like one of the foolish women, like, like a fool. A fool. A fool is somebody who says there is no God. Right? This is a worldly point of view. This is, a, this is an epistemology. This is a worldview that is not a biblical worldview that Mrs. Job is, is speaking from. Shall we not accept good at the hand of God and not evil? In other words, Job is under the umbrella of a no-risk view of providence. God is in complete control. Now, where do you want to be when trouble comes? You know, you, you, you drive home on, on these highways... There are crazy people out there. I mean, there are absolutely crazy people out there who are drinking coffee and putting on lipstick and texting and driving at the same time. And I've seen it. And the car in front is weaving back and forth, and you, you just know they're, they're doing, they're multitasking. And they're a, they're a risk. And you want to know now is God in control on I 20? Better take 77. Because. I-20 is a risk view of providence, and 77 or whatever is a no-risk view of providence. No, you, if you're anything like me, you, you sometimes pray out loud, Lord, protect me here, because there's a crazy dude in the car in front. <laughs> you are in complete and utter control of every event. Now protect me. I'm in your hands. Does that mean to say you put, take your hands off the wheel? No, of course not. Did Job, um, did Job get an answer for his providence? You know, he believed in providence and then, 
And then his belief in providence actually makes him angry. Because if God is in total control and he is innocent, and he is innocent because God says so, why should an innocent person suffer? Actually, we're not told. That we're not told. Job, Job never gets the answer to that question. Now, I've spoken on Job so many times in the course of my life that it's like, a, it's like one of these files. I have to, I have to close the door on it because if I, if I step one step further, I'm into an hour-long talk on Job and I can't get out. Um, and, and someday I'd love to do that with you, but, but I don't do it now, uh, so I've got to close the door. But, there, but there, is, there is in Job an absolute commitment to a total no-risk view of providence on Job's part, and yet he has to live with uncertainty and mystery. Because he isn't given the answer to the question why certain things happen and why they happen in the way that they happen and why they happen now rather than later. Or John 9, uh, the boy that was born blind and the disciples are adopting a view that, that, that sin is, is, uh, and evil is always the result of uh, that... Uh, that uh, Bad things are always the result of sin, so they ask, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Um, You know, from a pastoral point of view, from a Christian point of view, from a personal walk with God point of view, the doctrine of providence is... On the one hand, like, um, it's like a bedrock that in every circumstance, in every circumstance, good as well as evil, God is in complete and absolute control. It is providential. It is the outworking of his providence. Now there are good providences and then there are bad providences and there are mysterious providences and there are extraordinary providences for sure but all of it is providence it's all it's all part of God's control and as a Christian that's where I want to be I I want because outside of that there is no certainty there can be no assurance if if there's an aspect of the future that isn't controlled by God that God doesn't have a handle on I, I can never have assurance. I can never be certain about anything. I can't, I can't actually say God works all things together for good if he's not in control of everything. If, if everything isn't actually an outworking of his providence. But I also have to live with um, having to discern as that providence unfolds, how do I discern which path am I to take? That's providence and guidance. And uh, for the most part, the answer to that is actually being obedient to the revealed will of God in Scripture. Right? That, that, that actually will answer most of our questions. If you live 
the kind of lives that God intends for you to live, that in itself will answer the question about what does God want me to do in the future. But this view of providence also brings to the surface this this mystery element that just because God is in control doesn't mean to say that he tells you exactly why he does certain things at certain times in certain ways. And uh, like Job, um, you must lay your hand upon your mouth. You know, that's the climax of the book of Job. He puts his hand upon his mouth. He stops talking. He stops asking questions. He submits himself to the overruling providence of God. I, I don't know where you are tonight, and uh, you know there are uh, hundred, two hundred different scenarios uh, here of uh, issues that you are personally wrestling with in your own life, in your families life and to which there are multiple questions some of which are unanswerable but the uh, the assurance of scripture is God works all things together for the good of those who love him and, and that's where assurance lies it's a no risk view of the control and providence uh, of Almighty God. And let's pray together. Father, uh, we have uh, traversed uh, some difficult issues again. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. We sometimes have to say, who are we to try to plumb the mind and the depths of the mind of God? And uh, we, we... walk around like little children trying to understand things that are immense and unfathomable we thank you for those uh, certainties that you've set along the way that we can that we can place our feet upon that you are the lord that the future is set in concrete that you know what it is that you've made promises and prophecies that cannot be undone That we live and move and have our being in you. And we pray for a servant-like heart and spirit tonight to submit ourselves to you. Even when the lights go out and we fail to understand the reason. And in that sense, we pray that we might be faithful. And that we might sing your praises no matter what, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the certainty and the confidence that the cross and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus brings to us as we trust wholly and unreservedly in him. So hear us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.